conversations. A new thing we're trying out, trying to broaden the scope a little bit, where we're talking to artists, filmmakers, academics, who work with something related to the theme of unpleasant. doesn't have to be movies, but it can be. And today we're talking to Sahar Seyadian, an Oslo-based artist, and a series of paintings based on the story of Medea. Yeah, the Greek myth. Yeah. And um, I'll just recount that story quickly. I learned about that story. Growing up, I had this uh, movie that I really liked called Jason and the Argonauts. Yeah. Which is about this Greek hero. He's kind of uh, promised kingship, but he has to perform a quest. So he gathers all the greatest heroes of Greek time. He kind of establishes the Olympic Games as a way of finding the best athletes. Yeah. And he goes in this wonderful ship, the Argo, and they travel and they have all their trials, kind of like the Odyssey. Yeah, and they try to find the Golden Fleece, right? And the Golden Fleece, that's right. And so they travel to the land of Caucasus to get the Golden Fleece. And the king's daughter, Medea, the high priestess of Hecate, their god, their worship, she falls in love with Jason. And so she betrays her king and her brother and uh, everyone to help him get the Golden Fleece because that would be kind of a, a minor tragedy for that country. It's kind of like a, a fleece of plenty that kind of aids in their, you know, good harvests and stuff. Yeah. But she betrays all of them and helps him on his quest. They go back to Greece, and he doesn't really get the kingship anyway, so they go to Corinth instead. And at this point, he betrays her and starts off with another woman. So he's, she's kind of left on her own. She's uh, been had. Yeah. This story of Medea kind of starts off here. It's a play by Euripides. It's about um, her kind of frustration around being a foreigner in this country who's completely on her own and her escalating frustrations leading to a revenge on Jason by not only towards the, the king and the daughter that he wants to marry, but also murdering her own children. Yeah, it's incredibly tragic. It's a really interesting story and it's been interpreted in a lot of ways throughout history. Yeah. It wasn't so popular in its time, actually. No. I think it won a part of the contest it participated in, but it was quickly forgotten and then picked up again in the later centuries uh, as part of the feminist movements and stuff. Yeah, she has a, a rather interesting role in, in Greek drama. Yeah. Uh, she's one of the biggest and most famous characters from Greek drama. And uh, she's just a very interesting character. And of course, tragic mm. as all hell, but mm. sort of themes of agency and, and power and uh, betrayal... It's always current, like it always applies to yeah. human societies. In some ways, this is one of the like proto unpleasant stories because yeah. it really starts off on a sour note and it just gets worse and worse. Uh, well, that's Greek tragedy for you. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, a lot of these stories, they have so much ambivalence about them. Yeah. Some ways she's kind of freeing herself by her actions. She can be viewed as a villain for, you know, murdering her children. And yeah, super dramatic. There's a couple of notable films, one by Lars Montier and one by Pasolini. They're quite different. Very interesting, both of them. Yeah. Anyway, so here's our interview with Sahar. Today I'm in the studio of Sahar Seyadian. Seyadian. <laughs> and we're talking about some of her artwork. Now, we met a while back at a studio visit. And could you tell me something about the exhibition that I saw here? Yeah, okay, that exhibition was about media. The title was about media. It was more my confrontation with that story and how I felt related to that. Because when you read it, you know that this story happened more than 500 BC, before Christ. But it's super modern. When I read it, I feel this is still happening. And it's not just only about a woman who gets betrayed and becomes wishes and kills her 
kids. I think almost everyone has that rage when they get betrayed. Mm-hmm. Give a short summary of the story. Medea is a woman who even kills her brother. She betrays her own family to save the love of her life. Mm-hmm. And her man wouldn't make it without her. So she helps her to complete the mission that she was supposed to fail in it. But after that, he gets what he wants. He just betrays her by trying to marry daughter of the king. She has a barbaric background. Mm-hmm. So she's an immigrant in ancient Greece. So she was object of discrimination. They didn't let her to even enter the city. She was living outside of the city. And that's how we get to see the immigrants were treated back then. Because she was a really wise woman as well. So she has this reputation of being wise and strategic. So even King didn't want her to live outside of the city because they were thinking she's gonna do something. Because well, she has kind of a background as a, a sorceress as well. Yeah, a yeah. she's half human, half god, basically. But we see the rage in her, that how she's heartbroken, that she's deserted by her own husband. She's living with her children outside of the city. Then then they are making her even move from there. And she has no homeland. She can't get back where she's coming from. No. Because she has betrayed her own family. Mm. So that's a story that even how many times we are in that type of a situation that you trust someone to do something like that for them and they end up dis- disappointing you. Mm. That rage made me to make this series. But what happens with the media at the end is that in order to take her revenge, not only she kills the king and the bride, the woman who was supposed to marry her husband, she kills her own children to take revenge. Because maybe they were reminding her of her husband. She could see him in them. And at the same time, for a man, his legacies are his children. It's really important. So she knows that if she kills the children, it's gonna leave this scar in his heart for the rest of his life. That I took your bride, I took your children, and your everything. So that was really empowering, actually. I'm, I'm not trying to really support killing <laughs> children, but I could really feel that rage and understand that maybe that wasn't that bad of a choice in her position. But even in order to do that, I realized she'd gone through this transformation inside herself. And in order to do that, to reach that perfectness, because she turns into God at the end, you know. she right. The moment that she kills the children and the way she leaves the stage, like leaves the husband flying high in the sky, <laughs> I was thinking, yeah, maybe this is the price you need to pay for your love. <laughs> at the end, she wasn't human anymore in my eyes. She got contacted by her own roots, which were, she has the sorceress in half god. So tell me about your artwork in specific. This is a series of paintings on large canvases mm-hmm. on the wall. And you also paint on the walls themselves. Yeah, yeah. This series that I do, it was the first chapter of me. The other one, she's going through this transformation and her pain. It was mostly displaying this pain in these paintings and these figures bleed outside of the canvas on the wall Hmm. like when you're in that process you you're everywhere your pain is everywhere 
and like these drippings I mean I it's like a blood to me and I work with charcoal as well charcoal is made of basically ashes mm. that carries this ancient mm, soul in it lot these organisms that's been there for a million years and they made charcoal so I'm, I even work with that as, as a symbolic meaning for me and I try to because I'm immigrant now and I've immigrated before as well and her story somehow happened to me mm. when I was in my own country when I moved to bigger city and you moved from Tabriz to Tehran from a Turkish city to a Persian city and in Iran it's mostly like Persian people have the power mm. and we we are in a minority basically Turkish people so we've been subject of discrimination as well and when I was in Tehran I felt that what happened and basically the same thing happened to me then I moved from Tehran to Norway and again something similar happened but in a different way and I felt for the first time in my life that how vulnerable I am mm. at least as a woman Because when you're an immigrant, you have basically, you don't have that many rights. Mm. If I rage out, if I do something that that person did to me, I'm going to get deported, not them. So I needed to keep it quiet and just bear with whatever happened. That was the moment I thought maybe I really need to work on this project. And this series of paintings I wrote with Persian calligraphy, some parts of the media's story on the wall merged with the paintings themselves. Yeah, right on the paint. Uh. On the painting, on the wall, even on the ceiling, on the floor. It just bleeds out all these words in Persian. And I kept it in Persian because I thought Persian represents my voice who's been lost mm. after yeah, after my immigration. Sometimes I feel I haven't talked with anyone in years because the way I think in Persian, the way I think in my... even I mean, Persian is not my mother tongue either. It's first it's Turkish, then Persian. But I'm used to it. And now that I even don't get to express myself in that language, I feel that I'm building this new character mm-hmm. in English. So, I mean, language is a really important thing that we don't get to see that how it affects immigrants, basically. You get imprisoned in your head. But your family moved with you. No, I'm alone. You moved um, alone. Um, I came here as a student. Because you yeah. studied architecture? Yeah, I came here as an art student. It was just a, this turning point in my life that I thought, why I'm doing stuff that I really don't want to do. Mm-hmm. Let's for once do something that I'm really, really into. I'm not thinking about money anymore. I'm not thinking about the prestigious. So your thoughts about architecture, that was more um, yeah. a career. Uh, yeah, a career. I can get this stable income. And for first time, I thought, no, uh, I'm just gonna do whatever I want this time. But I applied to U.S. and Norway. I got into schools in both, but I chose Norway at the end of the day, and I'm happy actually with it. I don't think living in U.S. would suit me that much. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, so it's it's big and hectic. I wasn't ready for that. Maybe Norway is more. It's, Uh, it's a calm city and there is not that much tension in it. So I got to sit and think and figure out what happened in my past oh. for the first time because I was so busy before that you don't get to even realize what's going on with your life. 
Yeah, then that thinking process actually led me to be more depressed. Mm-hmm. Because then they, then you really see what happened. Did you feel that you acutely needed to deal with your past? Yeah, of course. I mean, it's not good to... Uh, uh, my coping mechanism was to just push it aside and pretend that it didn't happen. It's the easiest way. And when you're in a country that every day someone is fighting with somebody else, one day you wake up, the economy has been crashed. One day you wake up, the airplane has been crashed. I mean, in that situation, your brain is all the time occupied. You don't get to sit and think what happened yesterday to you or what happened in your past, your traumas. You, you don't, you're, yeah, you're, it's like you're walking, you're running inside this hamster wheel. Mm-hmm. And when I came to Norway, the first time I had the chance to sit and think, I, my brain was not occupied that much with the hectic stuff outside. And it was painful to face because I couldn't run away from it anymore. Was that a gradual realization? Yeah, it was gradual and I was not realizing this is that. I was just feeling depressed. I was trying to think that, okay, because I'm in a new country, this is new. It's because of all the immigration side. I mean, everyone goes through this, but I don't think it's everyone goes through this. It really depends where are you coming from and if you are forced almost to. Because I feel forced to leave my country and I don't think I can get back there anymore. Even if I don't stay in Norway, it's a different situation for somebody inside Europe travels to somebody somewhere else to try experiment coming from Middle East. We have kind of a, a stable base that we can return to. And you feel safe and you think this is your choice. But with me, it's mostly that I'm forced to leave. I have no choice, basically. And that hurts sometimes. I feel that I'm living in suspense because my passport worth nothing. I mean, how many countries you can travel with Iranian passports? Less than five. I don't know that much. It's, it's really, we have a really weak passport. And in the process of moving out, we you need to go through this to get a visa for each country it takes sometimes months. You need to spend a lot. It's not like you have this Schengen visa that you can just <laughs> hop into a train and move around. So how was your process getting to Norway? I mean, a student visa is the easiest one. Fortunately for me, it took me one month or two months to go through it, apply, spend. And I think it's around 5,000 kroners. I mean, in our currency, is a lot, yeah. this money. <laughs> so I need to spend that much and provide the stuff they want the bureaucracy is heavy actually but for example my brother wanted to come from turkey and help me to move in he didn't get okay, the visa okay. you have to apply months in advance i expect around three months before it's good time to apply and he didn't got the visa so i just moved in by myself and i had so many stuff <laughs> also yeah the first day i got here it was hectic yeah <laughs> sounds like it yeah, but I mean, I made it sometimes when I look at past, I can't even believe I've done this stuff. <laughs> when you are forced and you're in life and death situation, I realized it's like a magical power that human beings get. Like I made my portfolio in two months to get into, yeah, give the and, and do you mean, um, did you create all the artworks? All no. the artworks. All the artworks <laughs> and you, you made a portfolio out of it. Yeah, yeah portfolio, SOP, artist statement. I did all of it in two months. And before that, I didn't even know what does it mean. And what did it consist of, the initial artwork that you started making? 
Before that portfolio, I was more into graffiti art. My way of like, if you see Banksy in, in my works, my sketches looked like that type of situation. Okay. But it's kind of similar on, on the wall, large mm, scale. Yeah. Is it with spray cans? Not spray cans, but filled it with paint. You can make the same effect with acrylics, basically. It takes more time, I think, but <laughs> I was so into that. But then I realized, I mean, when a professor evaluated my work, said you can't get into schools with this type of uh, approach. Mm. Contemporary art is a different thing. And I started to search more and I, I got to know what does it mean. <laughs> a few months before even applying, I didn't know <laughs> what is contemporary art. <laughs> Yeah, it sounds because our our way of the art in Iran. I'm not saying a lot of artists worked with contemporary art, mm. but people are not into it that much. So yeah, we couldn't keep up with the Western contemporary art scene yet. I think, and it's so uncanny to people, and it was uncanny to me. But in order to get in the schools, I realized I need to get to know this more and I work in that realm more. But after I got here, I realized, okay, I'm I'm working like in a half Persian way, half Iranian, half Western, contemporary. I'm I'm none of them. You kind of uh, split your uh, yeah. influences. I, I wanted to be accepted in both parts. I realized I'm not accepted in any of them no. <laughs> now because it's just new. And that's one of the other outcomes of being an immigrant and trying to integrate with the new scene. In what way specifically do you feel that you're not accepted? Is it your art or is it you as a person? Or? It's, I mean, me as a person, I feel I'm accepted, but the art maybe, I mean, I'm coming from different cultures. Sometimes there are some clashes, but yeah. overall I feel accepted. But when it comes to my art, aesthetics, for example, are really important in Eastern art like making something beautiful and making something understandable to the audience but here i don't i didn't see it it's you're not i mean you're not forced to make something really understandable or making a pretty piece is actually going to look down upon that if you're making something pretty yeah, or beautiful it needs a reason to be beautiful yeah, beautiful but i was trying to make still something aesthetically pleasing for myself but it's still not like in an Eastern way, the way they do. Yeah, because these paintings are quite raw, hmm. in a sense. They're very confrontational. Yes, uh, yes. And yeah. this subject matter, are these self-portraits, did you say? They are more self-portraits, because I, if you see, I, I'm using really thin bodies. I all the time show the ribs and stuff. I, the reason I show that, because I'm really thin, and I had so many issues with my body image it was like i all the time got encouraged in iran to become thicker that's the beauty standards there yeah. and so I, I was all the time being insecure about my body and i came here and i realized i want to work with the really thin anorectic bodies mm -hmm. that's if you get to see that type of image a lot in my work it's because of it reminds me of me myself yeah, because you were showing me imagery of some of your other works earlier. Mm, um, yes. And uh, you had these bodies of children. Mm. They look starved. Um. Mm. I mean, I, I worked with children as well. I mean, these are the stuff that issues that I have. Immigration, children, child pornography. I've even worked in that realm too. And now it's war mm. and feminism and things that we as a human being are struggling a lot 
I've been told, why are you so hung up on negative stuff? But <laughs> I, I feel that we need to acknowledge this stuff. Being in a safe zone by not seeing them and not being reminded of them. One day truth gonna hit us in the face, I think. Yeah. And we are getting close to that. Just because war is happening somewhere else or this stuff are happening to children in somewhere else doesn't mean that I should be passive about it. Mm. I'm not trying to blame everything on capitalism, but at the end when you see what is it feeding, pornography, I don't know, like, or using commodifying women's body and it's all the time for somebody else to gain more money and when they gain more money they produce more and at the end you see we are in this or with war for example war is happening somewhere else to some other countries sell weapons mm -hmm. and at the end we are in the verge of environmental apocalypse basically because we destroyed the, not only ourselves the planet as well and now it's taking its own revenge from mm -hmm. us and in that moment, you can say that, but I didn't do anything. It was, I don't know, these factories in US who did that, or this, I don't know, in Brazil. I mean, you can't blame others because we all gonna burn in the same, in the same way, <laughs> I should say, so. And does that factor in the creational process of your art? I mean, it's mostly like the way I feel about this. I feel the rage and then I bleed on the canvas, really literal. <laughs> I mean, my work is literal and it's important for me to be really confrontational so almost anyone can understand it. Not understanding it, let's say experience it. No matter, because I asked a lot of non-artists about their opinion about my art. Because when you are an artist, you basically get to see artists and you get their feedback. Yeah, it becomes a bubble that you exist yeah. in. Yeah, it becomes our own bubble and we try to satisfy each other and maybe sometimes looking down upon the other audience or not even overlooking them yeah, basically. not acknowledging them. no yes exactly so i invite a lot of non-artist people to come and see my show and mm. give me feedback and it's completely different than the artist yeah what do they so, say i mean the worst that for example maybe the like more academic or my professors are yeah this is too literal maybe <laughs> But when it comes to non-artist audience, they like those works better than the abstract ones that mm. I've made. The ones that were more accepted in the school, they make less impact on non-artist mm -hmm. audience. And this was my personal experience. I'm not saying that this is all the time the case. So that's why I was trying to still make a really, yeah, it's a fine line between those things and stand in, the bit, in between these to make something that some a worker, a, cleaning lady in this school can understand or feel it as well because the the expressive element is yeah. very important to you. yeah yeah exactly that's the thing and they can feel it they don't need to know specific theories they don't need to know art history to understand or feel or experience it in a way i want so if they are in a room they're gonna feel the tension somehow and i put some symbols there in order to someone likes to crack it as well but yeah, because you have very strong imagery, but then there are layers of things like yeah. the story of Medea and the text, which is written in Arabic. Yes. Which uh, needs an interpreter, at least, yeah. uh, if you don't speak the language or yeah. read the language. I mean, uh, that language thing causes, it makes the work more abstract for any audience, but mm. it has a meaning. I, I didn't do it for the sake of making it abstract. It was something real that was happening in my head that 
I talk like this in my head, <laughs> but I'm not able to express it. And the first time somebody can see how does it feel to not be able to read something, not be able to get into my world. And they wonder about it and they say, oh, I wish I could read this. And I say, this is the point, basically. You can't read it the same way I can't express it. And anytime I try to even translate my sentences, the stuff that I made, my poetry or stuff that people, I wrote it, I mean, I use different texts from different contexts as well. It's not, not everything I, is not mine. As I understand, there's a mix of parts of Medea. Medea, exactly. And, and your own poetry. My own poetry and some of these sentences are from these videos that I've seen in Iran when people were fighting with the government and they were yelling at police. These are some, some of them are from people. Did you gather them from news clips? Or yeah, from, yeah. yeah, and like these are, the, some of them are self, like people themselves took it with their phone and tried to pass it on BBC or something in the case that the world can see what's going on there if they want to do something about it. And stuff that they say in those videos is almost impossible to translate. Mm-hmm. It has no meaning. Mm-hmm. You need to know our culture to understand why you calling a man that way is offensive uh-huh. and what they are expecting the police react in a certain way in the words that kind of sprawled around over the paintings of the bodies and around the wall mm-hmm. and you said they were somehow part of your own thought process so. yeah yeah my own thought process basically it's it's when you are in this room i mean my work is really context specific if you're in this room it's gonna be different than if i made this project in a different room once I've heard that someone, it's like a prison, you're inside a prison, mm-hmm. somebody has scribbles on the wall, it's exactly the same in my head. So it's like a more visual way of my thought process, how, how I think, basically, and how messy it is. Have you tried exhibiting the same piece in, in many different locations? Have you observed how it changes? I've done this project in different gallery spaces. This is in my studio, first time it happened in my studio. But anytime I'm in a gallery space, I try to own that space. Mm. I haven't planned before. I just get there and see and feel how does it feel to make it work in this room. Do you bring already painted canvases or do you start anew? I bring already made canvases and then spread outside of it. So that's new. And it's in the moment happens. Sometimes I add new images on the wall, Mm. like graffiti. And most of the time I haven't planned before that what I'm going to do with the walls. It's just in the moment I start to put the first line there and then the rest comes afterwards. And the composition of the stuff I'm saying, like, it's not already planned. I, yeah, I do it in the space, basically, each time. And if I'm supposed to do the same work in the same room again, it won't turn out the same. I'm going to make it in a different way. So you had an um, exhibition at the Skylight Gallery here in Kiel recently. Would you tell us a bit about that? After the past few months, people in Iran, we, there was this huge demonstration going on in Iran and turned into an intra-fight basically between people and police. In two days, around 1,500 people died. Let's say almost two people in a minute. And then this airplane crash happened. There are allegations that it was on purpose. It's a complicated story, but it was so many stuff happening on top of each other at once that I felt that I want to work with this subject of war, Mm. this vicious cycle of killing each other in 
I mean, when it comes to politics, it's really complicated. You don't know why really this happened and who is feeding the beast. So I got into the subject matter of war again, and I I made a big canvas, this time the size. And the reason it's big, because I want the figures that I make to be almost in the scale of real human body. So when you stand in front of it, you feel that you're staring at a real person. Mm this bodily confrontation with canvas and i've used like people from different wars so it's not just only about iran because each time this stuff happened around side the world we sit and watch and say okay what can i do about it you just feel sad maybe you don't eat dinner and it's over next day and this happens that it, this goes into the cycle at the end is dooming all of us because I think we as a human being, we are living in this huge web. Any activity we do, it's just, it's on a wave. It goes on a wave and affects every other person. Let's say if you are encountering 2,000 people in your entire life, you're affecting in all of them and each one of them gonna affect two other thousand people. So imagine if it's a war happening somewhere, it's gonna affect the whole system. As an artist, I couldn't overlook that. Yeah, I'm not here to bring solutions on the table. It's not what art can do or is supposed to do. But it's just representation of something, to remind something in a way that it couldn't be portrayed in other way. That's why I work with these contexts and I found it important and I want it to be accessible for the mass. That's why it's so, as I said, so expressive mm. and sometimes can look literal. But I like that effect. I think it's important for me, at least. What was this poem that you'd written that you used as part of this? Uh, the poem that I wrote was basically, if I translate it in and making an interpretation of it, is that, that after revolution, parties after parties started to just collapse and they got executed one by one. And people kept quiet. Anyone who wasn't Marxist didn't care that what's happening to Marxists. And now when this airplane crashed, it was normal people inside. I mean, there was no, no one is demonstrating, nobody was parting with a specific party and stuff. It was normal people who were minding their own business and they just exploded in the air, their children, their husbands, their wives. And that was the moment I thought, I'm not saying we deserve this, but this would have come one day. We should have seen this coming. So this inspired me to write this poem that when they came after you guys, I kept quiet. Now they came after me and nobody's left to even support me. And says maybe now you need to keep it silent because you're not Iranian. And I'm actually confronting other people that are outside the world that they're keeping it quiet mm. or just thinking it's not their business what's going on there. But as I said, I think I believe in this vicious cycle is just going to doom everyone at some point and this exhibition is a skylight was based on war and the poetry was pointing at this point and you you also um you painted several figures so there's this large head and mm. then this other bodies that are taken from newspaper things yeah yeah some of them were from iran and iraq's war some of them from vietnam war and some of these figures were from armenian genocide like any war that you can imagine and if i see the photo i start to represent it again 
But those large heads were kids, basically. These kids who are mutated and people are still giving birth to these type of kids with weird disorders and mental health issues. And Is this because of chemical warfare or is it... Also uh, because of, yeah, the, after that atomic bomb explosion, now people's DNA has got affected. And now, although it's been, let's say, around 70 years before this happened, but next generations are doomed. These kids have no idea what happened in the past and it's not their fault basically but they are paying the price for something that someone else did long ago. Are you talking about Hiroshima? Yeah, and yeah, the Nagasaki. Nagasaki and it's really painful to mm. see these images of kids but I realize no one is even talking about them. That's why I try to portray them to remind myself at least that this is the price we pay for the war i mean in other wars maybe you can say that people get killed and it's over hmm. but this atomic bomb situation was something that doomed the next generations it's like it's never over and maybe for the end of time we're gonna have this situation in with the people in that region and that's catastrophic no other species in nature has done something <laughs> that catastrophic to their own kind at least we've managed to do this <laughs> so yes humanity does have strange ways of being cruel cruel yeah how much you should hate people to do this to doom them for centuries even and i worked with this kids images as well so it's everything in it did you see this series that came out last year about Chernobyl? Yeah, I, I've seen. It's kind of uh, reinvigorated the debate around um, terrors of nuclear disaster yes. and um, made it very clear how close we were, even here in the north of Europe, to irreversible damage for generations. Mm. Yes, and they make a lot of points in that series. Power of denial, how far it takes, or this really famous dialogue that was a movie that each time... Basically, I can't remember the exact words, but it says each time we lie, we are in depth to the truth, you know, and one day truth's gonna show up. Um, and that situation that it happened in Iran, basically, a few months ago, people were feeling that they're like that. You lied and all of a sudden your lies are... Catching up. Yeah, catching up with us. Doesn't matter if this Chernobyl thing happened somewhere else. We are in the same cycle, I'm just saying, yeah, this stuff happens so... Now, I mean, we are accused of making atomic bomb in Iran, which I'm not sure actually if it's happening or not. I, I can't say. I don't know. But if it's that's the case in any country, I'm really... I mean, why? Who's, who are you going to target? And if other countries don't want Iran has it, why they have it yeah. in the first place? If I try to be objective, why this exists even in any country? I don't want it in Iran. I don't want it anywhere else. So this power thing is going on. God knows how many times we were this close to get <laughs> exploded. I went to the um, monument in Hiroshima, the monument museum, a few years ago, which was a very powerful experience. I don't think I've ever had such a powerful museum experience. And um, one of the things they have displayed is uh, a letter that they write every single year. Along the walls, it's covered with these prints of these letters to different governments mm. asking them to please not develop and to, um, you know, destroy nuclear arms. Yeah, but the thing is, yes, maybe what's done is done, unfortunately. I don't know how can we even fix what happened in Hiroshima even now. I don't see them getting acknowledged actually that much. When it comes to other wars, I mean, 
this is not a competition like when it comes to holocaust for example it's good that we have as many books and documentaries and movies about it when it comes to hiroshima or war in palestine i don't see that actually and i don't get it why even with Auschwitz and stuff that's like still gets denied by people as if yeah yeah they are uh, it's important for art to kind of keep history alive i think mm-hmm. uh, i mean i'm i'm really happy that it's being acknowledged i wish just others were as much yeah. paid attention because if we don't acknowledge something we can't change it and it repeats yeah it repeats when like when this hiroshima thing doesn't get acknowledged it means there is a chance that it's going to get repeated at some point and that's catastrophic and all of this is aside i think this environmental apocalypse that i'm talking about i think it's really close as well well it's happening it's happening <laughs> and we are in a denial basically that's denial that you could see in that chernobyl movie yeah that's <laughs> all are. of us <laughs> yeah because you don't want to think about it it's really terrifying to think that yeah planet is trying to get rid of us basically after all the things we've done and if we don't get to explode each other i think yeah it's nature who is ending capitalism <laughs> yeah well there um, certainly are a lot of um, dystopian narratives yeah. hanging over us um, it's interesting though the apocalyptic narrative is kind of a, a tradition at least in the uh, uh, the christian religion the story of jesus christ returning even in like the days of his apostates it's uh, the narrative was always that it was going to happen soon like yeah. in a few years the world's going to end and then we rise from our graves and it's kind of continuously always right around the corner which again you know you have these cult churches mm. in america where they commit suicide as a yeah. tribute to the coming apocalypse so yeah we have i mean in islam Shiites, we believe that our imam gonna arise and save. I mean, saving in a sense that it's gonna end this darkness that we are in now. So the world is conceived as being in darkness. Yeah, and if it is gonna, they will be anticipated. And I mean, basically, what I've learned in the school, I am basing <laughs> yeah. on that. That at some point, the stuff gonna get so dark. The pinnacle of this darkness is the moment he's gonna come and save. So even some people say it's good to maybe even be this dark because he's going to come sooner than I mean yeah. Yeah, as far as I understand that's also some of the motivation for the Christian evangelicals in supporting Israel is that they they do want the uh, apocalypse to come. Yeah, basically we are rooting for the same thing too. And I mean it's it seems that's easier to like project the responsibility on something else. in this yep. sense is something sacred <laughs> before we doing something about it ourselves mm. it's it's the moment that you're so hopeless you've got you're so disappointed that you think okay maybe sh- i should bathe in this blood <laughs> and maybe somebody else can do something about it someone from the sky because we ourselves can't do anything which we can mm. if we were able to make that atomic bomb explode somewhere <laughs> like we could do a lot of other stuff as well if we can go to moon and travel in space yeah we can't stop this system that we are in i mean we could but we don't want to and it's easier to yeah put the responsibility on somebody else's shoulders yeah it seems to me that um it's very difficult for uh, politicians to take an active stance in terms of environment in some ways it's almost like a 
career suicide because then you have to give up all like the money that's coming in and you can't support your government plans or whatever it's it's kind of a a stalemate that's impossible to get out of yeah Um, which means that it's 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 gonna have to erupt in some way or another if we can't fix it through let's say voting or yeah but the thing is even these politicians or whoever we are we we are not different than each other we are all human And let's say if global warming let's say if it affects and all of a sudden Norway goes underwater. I don't want that to happen. But it's then doesn't matter if you're a politician or you're a teacher or whoever you are, everyone gonna sink. And that's too late to yeah. sit and think about. But I made the right choice maybe that time because I could make money more, but now I don't even have a house, it's underwater. <laughs> I mean it's actually super simple when we think about it, but it's really hard to practice it, I understand. But when we look at this bigger picture that we are all in the same boat, so, yeah. And I expect politicians to do something about it, but I expect the same thing from people. Yeah. Politicians are people like us. Like in Norway, they are, Nor- they are Norwegian people coming from Norwegian families. They've studied Norwegian schools and they got elected by Norwegian people. So I, I can't sit and say, yeah, they should do something. But I've done. So all of us need to take the responsibility. We can't project it only on them. And voting is not enough. That I vote to like to left or to the screen parties and I've done my share. <laughs> so now I can go and do whatever I want use my plastic bags and you know it starts from ourselves then we can reach to the bigger picture but yes i see this point but as i'm saying everybody is blaming somebody else no one is starting from them their own yeah that's a hard job yeah it is but it's not helping it's interesting somehow you know it seems that at least a lot of contemporary societies they're depending on like these cults of personality mm-hmm. where you have uh, someone like greta thunberg who voices a, a problem and becomes a, a sort of icon and um, gets commodified as well and kind of integrated into the system. It seems inevitable that everything gets swallowed by the same beast. Those voices are very important, but it's so easy that they just become a commodity. Commodity, yes. Or fetishized, basically. Like you see, it's really easy and it's like we are living in this era that everyone has a label. Hmm. Somebody is Marxist, somebody is Frankfurtist, somebody is, I don't know, rightist, leftist. I mean, we yeah. label people. and Even the anti-capitalists, the, the an- anarchists are the kind of sold and branded. Uh, yeah, it's like you go into a supermarket and want to pick people. I mean, these labeling turns into someone's identity, basically. And that doesn't help. These are all ideologies and we really need to get up and do something about it. And I know maybe in art it's hard to... Ex- I mean, art is not it's different than activism. Hmm. But in my perspective, based on my own beliefs, that's why I work with this subject matters a lot, because I think we are, we are in an emergency situation. And when it comes to, like, although media was more personal to me, but the rage she had, I can see it everywhere and with different people with kids who are labor labor kids and when they work hard like these kids i mean iran we have so many labor kids who get rented 
specific amount of money for a week for somebody else to beg in the streets or sell stuff in the street. It's really tough life and you can see that media's rage in them as well. So it's not only about immigration to me. It's not only about feminism even. Yeah, that's why I wanted to work in a different project as well. The second chapter of media to mm. represent this rage in adult, from another window with a different medium. I'm going to do that one day, maybe next year, but... That's not what you're working with at the moment. No, no, not, not at the moment. I'm more working on my series of big paintings about war, Vietnam War, mm. Iran's mm. war. Are you continuing the, the Scarlet exhibition? Yes, uh, yeah. yes, it's going to be my graduation show. But after that, I'm going to work on media again, but this time from a different perspective. It's not only about the pain even, it's, it's the rage I want to show and this time it's gonna be with about labor kids all right yeah because you can see that in them too what happens in you that you even want to kill your children nobody even sees that i mean but at least in the country i was coming almost everybody had that rage inside them so anytime you push people in the streets they start fighting or even in social media anytime somebody is opposing their opinion to somebody else they start blocking and throwing tantrums people are angry you can get to see that in norway in that sense but i found norway a little bit i, I see the rage as well here and how does it manifest uh, how do you think i think it's more like a passive aggressiveness yeah. i'm seeing here and i quite understand them because sometimes this is the thing with being After the demon, like when I asked this one of my classmates, said, this is democracy, you need to challenge everything, mm. to be politically correct all the time, to be polite, to be nice. And this builds this thick wall around you that you're all the time suppressing mm. your opinions because maybe it's not polite to say it, it's not right to say this. Then I realized this is, a, I see a more passive culture that people don't confront each other. Mm -hmm. They are not that direct. They suffer in silence. That has its own outcomes in a bigger picture, what happens at the end. And people become more unhappy and suppressed. And mm -hmm. all of a sudden this right wing rises and say, yeah, it's immigrants' faults that we are facing with these issues. Although there are a lot of other components in this narrative I cause this. Yeah, in Norway, as in many countries, there's a growing divide in terms of economy. Mm. Strangely, these debates tend to head towards immigration mm. in some way or another. The mm. least powerful group in society yeah. are to blame for the acts of the most powerful in yeah. the country. But the thing is, if let's say if we get rid of all of them, we had that magical power to make them vanish in a minute. The issues were still yeah. there because it's not they are not the source of the issue. They can cause some issues, maybe, but if we are facing the outcome of capitalist system and this passive aggressiveness, this rage, everything is hand in hand building this, what we are now, the situation we are now. So it, the easiest way is to just project it on somebody else from outside, and yet it's their fault. One of the few uh, valves I think we have is in like a commentary on the internet where you have the trolls where people mm -hmm. express more or less anonymously not not necessarily mm -hmm. of course but uh, a lot of views that seem inappropriate in a open public mm -hmm. social setting yes and you get to see a lot of people who would sound super 
polite and diplomatic reader, or maybe in a suit, they write the most wishes <laughs> comments that you couldn't even believe that it can be the same person. But that's the only place you can let some stuff go out mm. without feeling guilty. That's one of the symptoms. I mean, you can see it in social media when see people are acting wishes. Also sort of thought of it almost as if, um, you know, when people are in their own car and there's a blockade or something and you get super angry and you're mm. kind of festering inside this metal prison yes. in your bubble and you're not really surrounded by people. You can't go in a dialogue. Aggression is kind of growing and that's similar kind of the image of a person sitting in a basement. Of course, it doesn't mm. have to be just a person on the mm. internet integrating with kind of or surfacing with the entire world, but mm. kind of on their own festering not really listening but i mean i'm not in a position to really judge the society here because i'm not norwegian i haven't grown up here this is just a really i'm seeing is scratching only the surface i've been here only one year and a half so i respect it a lot and i think they should come and talk about it more but even making people talk is hard thing yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. why alcohol is involved in making someone talk that shows something that we are struggling inside why i can't express my feelings without this chemical <laughs> attraction inside my body i mean that's that's something interesting too yeah you need a social lubricant to yeah. kind of smoothen the gears and then <laughs> saying stuff that may be gonna be so easy for somebody from a different culture to say it in a minute mm -hmm. But in here, you need to know a person, get into there, like, takes months <laughs> of practice. Yeah, like, work to break into someone's bubble uh. and to, you know, maybe in their social group around themselves. And even after that, you need alcohol to <laughs> help and sit and talk about. So how, how was that for you to meet our culture in, in, in that? How is it different from what you're used to? I mean, it's different as I, I mean, the first thing I realized, yeah, I, I felt although people were so kind and super nice and polite. I mean, I had a really nice experience <laughs> and my first impression was like, this is amazing. But at the same time, I realized it's on the surface. In the first four or five months, I still felt like I'm a stranger. Mm -hmm. You're not included. Uh. I'm not included. I'm not in, inside the circle. I'm outside of it. And it took almost a year, people around me, to break that wall. Mm. What does that look like? How do you experience it, the change of being integrated more? At first, I, I was somehow fighting against it in my head i think i didn't want it that happened it was like i was letting some other stuff go mm. i started to dream a lot about my past stuff that i didn't even remember that they happened so i realized maybe i'm my brain is forgetting stuff or i'm letting those stuff go and trying to in integrate a new culture and my body doesn't want that happen but now it feels better it feels better but i feel lost because no matter how much i try to integrate I won't be accepted in the same way as someone who's born here and who's white. What are the connotations of the word accept? What are you thinking about when you say accepted? I mean, when I, we have conversations or the, we, the way people act around me, it's like sometimes for first years it was like I'm a tourist here. You know how you treat tourists? Yeah, polite but not personally. Yeah, I, I felt like there is this wall in between me and people and still I'm getting judged with my hair color because <laughs> it's black if we were in a bar or something sometimes 
I saw these reactions from some people, but it's not that big of a deal. I can live with that. But yeah, that was the moment I thought, uh, um, what if I will never be accepted in this society? Mm. I'm all the time gonna be an immigrant. This label in my forehead mm. is gonna turn into my identity. But maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. This I have this feeling that oh, I haven't learned the language well yet. But I had this feeling even if I learn the language well, if I talk fluently, still I won't be accepted. And it's more understanding because we don't have that many immigrants here hmm. either. It has its own history. It has its own people. And I'm gonna all the time be an outsider. And some people think that can think that I'm staining their culture by my existence, but some people are not. No matter what, it can be only in my head, but I feel that way with the way I... <laughs> Did you have any thoughts or feelings about this sort of thing inversely from, I don't know, when you moved from Iran in terms of uh, immigrants coming to that country? In there, what happens? Like your observations about immigrants in... Inside the Iran when I was mm. inside. I mean, it was horrible, basically, I should say that, because we all know what happened in Afghanistan. Mm. And then we had this huge wave of immigrants from Afghanistan who came to Iran and they were treated so badly. As a difference, I mean, Iranians are really famous for being having a huge sense of hospitality. But I realize it's only toward white people. Yeah, if you're coming from France or you're like white or speaking English... They're gonna open their doors to you. You would never see it it's here. I, I mean, not never, but almost I haven't seen something like that in here. Mm. They're super open towards this developed countries, people who are coming from them. When it comes to developing countries like Afghanistan, they looked down upon them. They don't matter how many years they are living there, they, some of them don't have passport yet. They are fighting to get citizenship. They get used a lot. They are only allowed to work in specific jobs. <laughs> Menial type work. Mm, it's more like a, a constructive worker, like this type of jobs, no. mostly. Construction. Yeah, if they gain the citizenship, then they can become doctor or go to university and stuff but like that. But if not, they're only allowed to work in specific areas. And people are su- were super vicious toward them joking about them, humiliating them. It's basically a curse to call someone Afghanistani. Oh, if you really? call it that, it means they're, yeah, it's a curse word, basically. And That's horrible. It's really, it's horrible. I mean, my experience with that was that when, when I was in fourth grade, I was like, we were 10-year-old. We had this classmate in our class that she was Afghanistani. And once there was a fight in between kids and they called her, shut up, Afghan. Hmm. and afghan is a curse as i said and she started she teared up but she didn't cry hmm. i mean yeah children do lots of horrible stuff but it shows that even from our childhood we were somehow trained to hate hmm. these people that was super sad yeah i can recall from my hometown some people would use the word um, sami as a negative which um, wasn't very common, but some would. I always found it very strange and uncomfortable. Yeah, I mean, that's way of breaking someone, hmm. especially when they are almost integrated in the society, children are growing up. So from the beginning, they know that they are lower than 
So when you're in your head, you know, you're lower than others. You're super vulnerable. You're gonna do whatever they want yeah. you to do. The hierarchy of power. And then yeah, they're gonna hate themselves. I mean, good example of this. I don't know if you've seen this video. Some white kids and some darkest skinned kids, they bring them dolls and ask them which one you want to pick. Mm, yeah, who would you like to be? Uh, and yeah. like the, you could see the darkest skin tone or black mm. kids, they wanted the white doll. Yeah. They were so embarrassed to be the... And that's disastrous. That's how can you break a human being mm. from the beginning. So you have them in your fist. And when it comes to immigration, I think that's what they did with those people automatically. Yeah, that's sad. That's more like a psychological yeah. way of ruling someone. It kind of applies to gender theory as well, in terms mm. of how language do you throw a ball like a girl mm. as a way of undermining um, subtly. Yeah, no. Dragging someone to that level, so they're going to be stuck in that forever. Yeah, that's pretty sad when you see, because it's really hard to erase what happened. How to fix this is really hard now. It's going to take years to work on these people to gain their self-confidence and self-esteem back. And why hating someone just because they are coming from a different country? Mm-hmm. As soon as your country is in a crisis, it's like the whole world is peeking on them and I'm afraid that that same thing is happening with my country now mm. and how I'm going to be portrayed I mean Norway was a good I mean I had a good experience I've heard so many horrible stories from my friends in Canada or in France yeah they've been called terrorists just because they have dark hair I haven't had that type of uh, experience here and I'm really glad yeah that's good <laughs> And I'm surrounded with really nice elite people. I mean, of course, I'm in a school, so <laughs> we get to see this side of the society. It's this is probably one of the more inclusive environments yeah. you could come to, I would think. Yeah. The good thing about it is that even if you have these racist thoughts, someone, if they have, they are not proud to say it. <laughs> so it shows that we are in a good place with this side of the society. Because in other countries, maybe you can flaunt with racist yeah. statements. But here, you, the people are going to look down upon you. Not all the time, mm-hmm. but what I've seen at school and with the people around me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, the word racist, it bears a very negative connotation. So you will at times hear people say, like, I'm not a racist. But and yeah. then they, they, you know, have racist rhetoric underneath. Yeah. Um, because they can't openly... Yeah. Uh, acknowledge or even for themselves mm. uh, that kind of an identity yeah that's true that's part of the suppression as well but i don't think that's a bad suppression yeah maybe now it's bad but if this continues one generation later mm. it's just a starting point to suppress negativity if we're gonna suppress it mm-hmm. or at least find the right way to express that negativity that can be a good start too yeah well, one of the things that I found very interesting in this project of podcasts where we talk about mm. films that are very confrontational is that they um, typically, initially at least, are conceived of as very problematic and um, anti-humanitarian in a sense, where often I find that if you look closer, you find a very humanitarian basis where you're trying to challenge the spectator. 
and put them in an uncomfortable position and start a kind of a, a debate. And with the most extreme examples of these films that are very intense, you're kind of unable to leave that context without dealing with it in some way or another. And I saw a similarity between that sort of work and your own artwork, where you're very powerfully confronted. Mm. I wonder if you could speak a bit about other um, forms of art that uh, maybe play a similar role for you, that the kind of or working with uncomfortable narratives or imagery. Hmm. When it comes to this type of subject matters, it's actually dangerous realm. As I said, it can turn into fetishizing or making a building a fetish out of something. Hmm. And that's the realm I'm all the time really trying hard to not fall into that trap. Where does that line go for you? Hmm. I mean, let's say when it comes to, for example, people working with hijab, about I've worked in that as well in that area as well what does that mean when you say you worked in it does that mean uh, I, yeah with concept of hijab that ah. we are like in my paintings i mean my portfolio was based on muslim women hmm. but i did it in iran and it was toward our own people who were dealing with this discrimination and stuff like that but when i got here i i realized if i start to work on a hijab situation for example hmm. I'm gonna get encouraged toward it or maybe I can make it on that realm because it's really welcomed but not for the same reasons that I want. It can turn into this tool for some governments to use it against Muslim women here. Mm-hmm. Like in France, for example, like they are forcing women to not have hijab, although it's their choice. So government can just only show artists like me and say, see, like, this brave Iranian woman are fighting against hijab mm-hmm. and we are giving you the freedom to put it aside and you're not doing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was this situation a, a few years ago with the um, the swimming suit hijab. Mm. I don't recall what they call it specifically, but that was something that you couldn't wear in mm. public at these beaches because that would symbolize the suppression of women was the argument. But if it's a woman who's choosing it and it's in a free country, it's a different than if yeah. you... Like in Iran, you have to have it. It's not a matter of choice. But if somebody's choosing to do it outside of Iran in a way that it's a free country, forcing to not having a hijab is as bad as forcing someone to have it. (laughs) I mean, there is no difference in between these two. If somebody's free to wear a bikini, (laughs) why somebody else is not allowed to cover their own body? I mean... I don't get this. So if I'm going to work on that area, I need to be really cautious and careful that am I feeding the beast at the end of the day? I'm willing to do some good, but maybe it's not. And it was in my own personal experience. That's why I put aside those works. I'm going to work on them in Iran and I was exhibiting in Iran. But outside of Iran, I don't see any point in it. Yeah, it's a completely different debate. So. Yeah, it's a different debate. So what did your work consist of in Iran? The type of uh, paintings? Uh, yeah, it was more about feminism. Of, I mean, being a feminist is a curse word. Like, people are ashamed of saying that they are <laughs> feminists. So that really encouraged me to work on that area too. So uh, it was more about... My background, my family, like my grandma, her Hmm. story of life, and my grandma's mother, 
because their father had 12 or 13 wives mm. and some of them even weren't a wife they were just like a mistress not mistress uh, because it's hard to explain we have something like uh, called sire it's a religious thing mm. you can read that arabic sentence or what's it called verses mm. and then this woman can be your wife but temporarily okay temporary wife yeah temporary wife that sounds very convenient yeah i mean how does that work in practice? It just, I mean, now I'm, I'm, I don't know if I'm allowed to call it this way or I'm being super harsh, but I found it's a different way of prostitution, basically. Okay. Prostituting women, but without feeling guilty about it because you're doing it in a religious way. Mm-hmm. So it's allowed. Is there like a, um, a trade or monetary element in the... You can, yeah. It really depends on the parties, what they want. Well, how does it relate to like having children, for example? Is that something that you wouldn't do with uh, this? Yeah, you can have children with them then, but if you don't want to take any responsibility, it's basically on the woman who legally they don't get that many rights. That's what I'm saying. It's a temporary wife situation. So he had so many temporary wives Mm. and he had children from them and these children end up being maids for the wives. Oh, yeah. The other wives. So that's almost a class system, really. Class system, and that's what's her story of life. And although she was one of the main wife's children, my grandma, because she was a woman, her father didn't care. <laughs> he didn't leave anything for the girls, and he just gave them away in a really young age to marry really old men. Just got, she, he just got rid of her daughters, he <laughs> thought. His daughters was super sexist situation. In her story and the way she narrated, that's what I was working on. And she was super religious. And religion was the way to soothe her. Because she know no matter what, she gonna get rewarded in heaven. It becomes a protective shield. Yeah. She was a chest woman and that was something that I like her Yeah, I, I realized if she loses that religious side, she has nothing to cling on. So I never wanted to get into this religious discussions with her. Mm -hmm. I thought it's working for her. It's the best therapy for her. So let it be. (laughs) And I was working on that mostly. But after I came here, I put that project aside. I thought it is for my Iranian audience. If I won't get to see that many people from Middle East who can realize what's going on. It can fall into wrong hands as well. And I don't want to make recognition out of somebody else's misery. Hmm. And this can happen when you work with this type of subject matters. We need to really be careful to see who is getting the benefit. I've seen some white artists who work with subject of Palestine and Afghanistan. And Hmm. to me, when I saw the project, I just felt you were stealing somebody else's narrative, basically. All right. Is appropriating. Yeah. Did that feel inappropriate? Yes, it's a lot. It's basically what I'm saying. It's just gaining something from someone's misery <laughs> and dehumanizing them and desensitizing the situation at the end. Because all of a sudden you're not seeing them as people. They are just vulnerable. It comes from sense of pity. <laughs> and one example is that this, I think it was in Helsinki, this artist who made 3D print of this Syrian kid who found on the beach, that three-year-old kid yeah. was left in the beach and he made a 3D print of this kid and placed it in a gallery, if I'm not mistaken. I mean, I was thinking, would you do that with your own child? 
Yeah, that does seem very desensitized. Uh... Desensitized. And what are you trying to say here? Mm. I mean, I can believe that maybe he had good intentions. But when it's done by a white privileged man in Helsinki, it's, it's just, I don't want to tap into that zone. Mm. So it's a little bit hard to work with political subjects like that. Yeah, it certainly is. I was wondering if you could talk a bit about other artwork that you find uh, inspirational or useful mm. or artists or, or literature or music or whatever, really. Like Gallup for me now, recently, because before I was really a little bit skeptical that if I'm working with figures, is it okay to work with really make these scenes, this war and stuff like really figurative? Mm. Is it okay to do that or I'm desensitizing it as well? Mm. Or, but Gallup for me was a good source of inspiration that he just directly painted what was going on around him. Tell us a bit about his work. Yeah. His work was basically like when a police was hitting people, he just painted that hmm. figurative with details. He didn't make it abstract, he was, it was just literal. And I thought if he can do it, why I can't? Because when it comes to war, subject of war, fights and stuff, I think it's better to turn into like war journalism, that type of a situation. I, I think my paintings are better to tap into that zone, become mm. less abstract and more detailed and figurative. He's a good example. When it comes to feminism, I can say Marilyn Dumas. I really enjoyed her work. But there are a lot of good artists that I like and and there are a lot of good Iranian artists. But for example, when I was ex- I was really skeptical by bringing text in my work mm-hmm. in Persian because I didn't want it to get associated with Shirin Nashat, who's an Iranian artist. I like her work, but I just didn't want it to be associated with her. But after I talked with my professors, it was they said, it's okay, mm. you're doing it in a different way. So, mm. Yeah, because it's not a lot of artists that work with text directly on... Mm picture successful i would say it's a a difficult thing to get right yeah yeah that's true but these are like more like when it comes to emerging artists like shagaya rahmadian she's a young artist in iran she Mm. she was huge source of inspiration for me because she's i think i don't know if you are in the same age or she's two years even younger than me but making it in iran's art scene it's really hard i mean a lot of stuff is going on behind the scenes and she was able to making it without getting associated with art mafia basically yeah. and she was able to even exhibit outside of Iran although she didn't never traveled outside <laughs> so if she was able to break that wall why I can't I mean that that was a good thing that happened in my life and yeah basically this so um Sahara I was wondering if you have a recommendation for us of some other artwork. One artist that I really enjoyed his work and his work is different than different. He works in different medium than mine. His name is Chemi Rosado, and that was this project he did in Argentina in a small town that wasn't in a good condition. Mm. There were a lot of smugglers there, I mean it was a poor village. Mm-hmm. But his project was based on he gave people paint and they painted the facade of the houses. In the village. In the village. Yeah. So from outside when you look, it's a colorful village now mm. when you look at it. And 
like one of the other things that he did was he built this small like museum a small room that people could bring anything that they thought it's valuable to them okay. to display it as a like a museum worthy type of a so like a thing of personal value yeah like somebody could bring a piece of wood or yeah. i don't know a knife <laughs> But it was valuable to them and they thought this is a museum worthy. So that work really inspired me a lot. That This is a type of a thing that I said the work should be for the masses. Mm. He engaged the mass. Yeah, it's almost like a happening in a way. Yeah, yeah. and at the same time he painted that village as well on oh. a canvas too. So not only it had outcome for him, it has another outcome for the people around him and it's gonna last for a long time and i think for psychologically it was a good thing for that people too because mm. it was a it wasn't monochromic city like village anymore it was colorful it would have affect people in the long term and like that small museum thing that mm. he did it made solidarity in between people a source of yeah it was interesting what he did there and I like that type of a, when an artist have that type of effect on the society mm. So, yeah, that's my recommendation. Mm, thank you very much. Now, if you want to see some of Sahar's artwork, you can find it at Instagram, just search for Sahar Sediam. I will put a link in the comments. The music was made by Umulium, that's Yuskarning in Sverre Ogor. The episode was hosted by Thomas Simonsen Bambra. And if you want to get in touch with us, send us an email at unpleasantmovies at protomail.com. Well, thank you for talking to me, Sahar. Pleasure is mine. <laughs> Bye-bye.